for everybody that's had a close call in life where you're like, oh man, that was a close one. Every day since then has been an extra day. And when you think about life like that, it allows you to just unleash a little bit more and make the most of it. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artist of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artist of Data Science and on Twitter at Artists of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science as well as clips from the show. Join the free open mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artists of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. Our guest today is an acclaimed data scientist who for over three decades has been at the forefront of solving complex big data problems for companies and governments. He's focused on creating technologies that help solve the world's biggest data challenges, while also being an advocate for privacy and civil liberties, tackling many high-profile challenges, including identifying potential terrorists, detecting fraudulent behaviors in casinos, connecting loved ones after natural disasters, and modernizing voter registration systems. He's a serial entrepreneur and sold one of his companies, Systems Research and Development, to IBM in 2005. That same company which famously invented a program called NORA, an acronym for Non-Obvious Relationship Awareness, which mines data sources to determine relationships between people. He's a former IBM fellow, the highest honor a scientist at IBM can achieve, typically bestowed upon less than 10 people a year, a title that puts him in the company of five Nobel Prize winners. In 2016, he founded Senzig, based on a -a one-of-a-kind IBM spin out of the G2 technology and is the first to deliver real-time artificial intelligence for entity resolution software that enables organizations of all sizes to gain highly accurate and valuable insights about who is who and who is related to whom in data. He's the leading creator of entity resolution systems, and today numerous organizations rely on his systems to extract useful intelligence from tsunamis of data. His work has been featured in documentaries airing on networks such as the Discovery Channel and has been the subject of prominent chapters in books such as No Place to Hide, Safe, The Race to Protect Ourselves in a Newly Dangerous World, The Numerati, and The Watchers, The Rise of America's Surveillance State. He's a highly sought-after speaker who meets with government leaders, industry executives, and think tanks around the globe about innovation, national security, and privacy. His software has helped Las Vegas casinos identify fraud, increase voter registration, protected Singapore's waterways from piracy, and even predicted possible collisions between six hundred thousand asteroids over 25 years to help save the earth from armageddon thank you he's also one of only three people in the world who has completed every ironman triathlon currently on the global circuit this is especially significant given that he was briefly a quadriplegic in 1988 following a car accident so please help me in welcoming our guest today the man national geographic named the wizard of big data the mastermind madman and miracle himself jeff jonas jeff Thank you so, so much for taking time out of your schedule today to be here on the show. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks, man. Hey, with an opening like that, I'm not sure there's really anything left. I think you just kind of like summarized my entire life. Hey, man. Well, it's it's such an incredible story, man. Like your, your story um, and, and everything you've been through is such, 
such an inspiration for me. Um, I was wondering if you could just quickly just talk about your professional journey, how you first heard of data science and machine learning, and what drew you to the field? Well, I was like, I'd say 14 years old, and my mom said, do you want to go see something called a computer? And I'd never even heard the word. So I kind of went along with her, and she was a lawyer, and she was looking at a very early computer called a TRS-80 to do billing for, to automate her billing instead of using a typewriter. And they connected this computer over the phone line with those things called modems in the old days and started doing searches for things. And my mom had brought another friend with her who was a a self-proclaimed inventor. And he said, yeah, I'm inventing, I'm working on copper pipes and moving air through them to create refrigeration without electricity. And he goes, search for that. They came back and said, there's 112 other people researching that. And you could just see his facial expression and Right then and there, I went, oh, that's what I do. Yeah, I do. This is what I do. It's, this is data and finding data. And so it became a purpose. And so I just became obsessed with computers from that age. Uh, in high school, I wrote a word processor to do. I mean, excuse me. In high school, the first thing I did was create a, um, a little program to play Hangman. But the second thing I did is I created a word processor for another computer no one's heard of called a Pet Commodore. They didn't really exist back then. You couldn't really buy word processors for things like that. My school teacher at high school said, do you mind if I sell it? It works pretty well. And he, uh, he went out and sold a couple of copies, including one to the Los Angeles school district. So I got a check. I was like 16 years old and somebody sent me money for writing software. And I thought, this is crazy. And that, that was hooked. It's just been an obsession my whole life. That is awesome, man. Those are like some really awesome early gigs that you had there in data science. So, I mean, coming from where you started um, from the, really the early days of, of computing, where do you see the field of, of artificial intelligence, data science, machine learning headed in the next two to five years? You know, it's been kind of flatlining, I think, for a while now. Like, you know, it's, it's showing a lot of utility against pictures and, and, um, and uh, like multimedia sound data, but it's, it's, it's not really continuing to have the same gains in other kinds of prediction areas. And it tends to flatten out early you get all these early gains, but then to get to the last mile, it's not, it's been a little tougher. And an example of that is cars. I think it'll still be five, more than five years before we see autonomous cars on the road, maybe with the exception of long haul, long haul trucking. But some of the challenges that are going to come with this is security and, and privacy. I mean, we're, especially now with COVID, you know, the amount of instrumentation that the world will see, especially for contact tracing is going to put things in place that, you know, we may have to wonder, did we put the right things in place? I mean, we'll put them in place to save lives, but then will they be repurposed and used later? So that's on the privacy side. On the security side, uh, some of your listeners may be aware of this and some maybe not, but the number of attacks that are happening against public institutions and the private sector with uh, ransomwares and phishing attacks is really up. So desperate people do desperate things and other nation states are going to enjoy seeing us uh, in America here down, down in the dumps. So they're trying to make it a little bit harder. So between those two things, uh, I think we have a, our, our hands will be full on helping secure our systems. You know, you can't, I worry about that because you can't take something that's brittle and then, or it's a bad idea to take something that's brittle and then stack other brittle things on top of it. So imagine kind of an economy that's, teetering a bit. And then, you know, my God, if you had a ransomware attack against one of the financial institutions where the ransom was unpayable, like that would, you know, just be fragile and fragile and very bad. So, so in this 
in this, uh, you know, in this vision of the future with all these uh, issues that we'll be kind of facing that you just described, uh, what do you think is going to separate the great data scientists from the merely good ones? I think that a lot of the big gains to come are not about pointing algorithms at a data set, but converging multiple data sets and getting orthogonal data, like secondary data from secondary sources. Think about it like a puzzle. You got red puzzle pieces, blue, yellow, you know, green, white, black, brown, all these colored puzzle pieces. A lot of times what I'm seeing is people taking algorithms and applying them to a set of puzzle pieces, like the red puzzle pieces. Oh, we're looking for bad guys. We look at the red puzzle pieces for bad guys. But it really, if you weave those diverse data sources together, puzzle pieces into pictures, then I think we're going to see more effective outcomes in our machine learning and AI. By the way, I, I don't use those words interchangeably. When I say AI, I mean machines that act smart. And when I say machine learning, I mean systems that learn through experience. Many AI systems use machine learning, but not all. It's an interesting distinction. I like that. Yeah, very subtle distinction as well. Um, I like the, the point you made about uh, the puzzle pieces, because oftentimes I, I kind of describe what I'm doing to colleagues when I'm taking these disparate data sources and combining them together, uh, like almost like working with the Rubik's Cube, right? We've got all your Rubik's Cube is all mixed up and it's kind of our responsibility to before you even apply any type of model to it, to massage it into the right color schemes, I guess. What's up, artists? Be sure to join the free Open Mastermind Slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science. It's a great environment for us to talk all things data science, to learn together, to grow together. And I'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check out the show on Instagram at the artists of data science. Follow us on Twitter at artists of data. Look forward to seeing you all there. Get into to some of your uh, your history because it's it's quite inspiring. Um, some of the things you've been through, right? So there's a, there's a time very early in your career uh, when you went bankrupt. You were living out of your car, and uh, instead of going and getting yourself a steady job, you just went and decided to go for it again. Uh, you know, talk to me about what you're saying to yourself to get you through that, and what did you learn uh, from that to go on to create something bigger and better than what you had before. I dropped out of high school at 11th grade because there were no more computer classes because that's all I wanted to do. I went to one uh, junior high, uh, excuse me, junior college class on uh, one semester and did a couple of a programming class and maybe in a, a data analysis class. And then I just started my first software company and I ended up hiring a bunch of people. I had like 21 people working for me by the time I was 20 years old, but I'd made promises we couldn't keep. I didn't know how hard it was to build software. Like I agreed to build entire accounting systems, general ledger, accounts payable, accounts receivable for $1,500. Like that's just insane. I didn't know anything. So that, that company bankrupted. And so I was sitting there in my office, all my furniture is repossessed. I had all these employees with bounce checks that couldn't, you know, pay rent, feed their family. I felt pretty much like a schmo, cried some, but you know, I really wanted to just build software. So you could call that my a, a first kind of big life lesson. It was just a full up face plant. And I realized that the reason why we were unsuccessful in building software is we were we didn't have blueprints. I didn't really know exactly what they wanted built before I built it. It's kind of like, why would you try to build a house? You wouldn't even try to build a small dog house without a blueprint. You'll end up with the floor crooked and the roof half, you know, messed up. But what if you tried to build a house without blueprints? It'd be a mess. You couldn't even get your bathtub in because the door was too small or something. So I really focused on doing blueprints first. I went around and I, now you're a bankrupt 20-year-old, couldn't even drink alcohol. 
and I was showing up trying to get business. And how do you get business if you're 20 years old living in your car? So I made outlandish claims. I said, I'm going to do a blueprint. I'm not going to charge you for that. When I'm done with the blueprint, I'll tell you how much money I'll charge you at 600 a day. And at the time, that's a crazy price, 600 a day to be a 20-year-old homeless person. And I said, but don't pay me till I'm done. And every day I'm late, take 100 off. Man, you can get a lot of people sign up for that. So I do a blueprint. I know exactly what they want. One of the companies I did some work for was a, non, it's a philanthropic nonprofit called um, the CS Fund at the time located in Northern California. They would receive... They were, I think it was Ford Foundation money and they would receive grants and they wanted a grant tracking system. And so I designed probably a 50 page blueprint of what that grant tracking would look like so they could promote the best grants and give the most suitable people access to their philanthropic funds. And it would keep track of the status of those grants. But anyway, I gave, showed them the blueprint. I said 600 a day. They said, we've been working on this for a year and a half. We're not paying you 600 a day. I said, I'll be done in five days. If I'm not done in five days, I'll, I'll, you can take $100 a day off the price. They're like, huh, three grand. Okay, do it. And I finished in five. Now I had to work nine day. It was crazy. But that's what I did. And I just, I did that repeatedly. And I really dedicated my work in back when I was programming to blueprints first. And uh, that became a very successful way to build stuff. It's something that, you know, I often hear very, very commonly said about machine learning and, and AI projects and initiatives is that 85% of them fail. And I think the reason 85% of them fail is because nobody has a solid blueprint to follow. So fast forward just a couple of years later, now that you've reestablished your, your software company, you're, you're 23 years old, waking up in a hospital, uh, completely paralyzed after a terrible accident, you know, suffering the same injury that left Christopher Reeves paralyzed. I think most people at that point would have given up and had kind of the, the woe is me attitude. But instead you say to yourself, I think I could still use my nose and attach a pencil to it and program. I mean, life literally knocked you down. You got right back up in a literal sense. Uh, so talk to me about your mindset or, or the self-talk you had during that time. What was going on in your head? And then how did you overcome that? that uh, that challenge well first to just put a little color on that incident as i was in a test driving a bmw and the salesman was driving and they were showing off the car for the dealership and they said they were trained on a track and they uh lost control on a road at uh, i think it was 63 miles per hour and we hit a dirt embankment and it snapped my neck at c2 and so yeah i was a full quadriplegic i'm laying there in the hospital i never asked if i would walk again i kind of just believed i would like I didn't even ask. I just went, I'm going to be fine. I had no basis to know that or think that other than just positive thinking. And I, th and I just, to me, software has just been kind of like my hobby. And I, I imagine I said, well, I can at least still program. Like I'm going to attach a pencil to my nose. <laughs> I might be slower, but I can still program. Yay. Eight days later, a toe wiggled. And then I worked my way through a walker and a, a wheelchair walker. It came for a few hours and I walked out of the hospital 18 days later, my left leg dragged. At the time, I would have told you I had a bunch of lessons. I wore something called a halo vest, by the way. It's, some people will have seen these. I had a, mental, a metal bar that was around my head, a ring, and it had bars that would come down and attach to a chest plate and a back. And it would hold your head in suspension, like a cast, but without all of the white cast material. And I had to wear that for four months. And I had a lot of lessons from that. Like if you would have asked me back then, I'd be like, oh, I learned this and that. But all of those faded away. There's only one lesson that remains from that time in my life. And that is every day is an extra day. For everybody that's had a close call in life where you're like, oh man, that was a close one. Every day since then has been an extra day. And when you think about life like that, 
it allows you to just unleash a little bit more and make the most of it and, and freak out a little bit less about death because who wants death? Oh, that's really powerful. I think I'm going to adopt that, that, that new motto. Every day is an extra day. Um, it, it reminds me of, uh, I just recently, a couple of days ago, I was watching uh, impact theory and there's a guy on there called Hal Elrod. I'm not sure if you're familiar with him. Um, but he, he suffered a, a horrific accident as well. Um, and he, he formulated what he called the, the miracle equation. And it's really simple, like to get yourself through anything, all you need is unwavering faith and extraordinary effort. Um, so yeah, it, it just draws some parallels from that. And just out of curiosity, back then, what was the programming language that you were working with? I was using something called uh, DBase three and four and Clipper and Fox Pro. It was a class, it was a language class. All those were different products that had basically the same language. It was called a fourth generation database language. Okay. Yeah. So, so you've been involved uh, in, in some pretty amazing entrepreneurial initiatives. Uh, you've been able to kind of pick yourself up and push you through, push yourself through some devastating setbacks. Uh, do you have any advice or tips for, for anyone who's been toying with the idea of entrepreneurship, but maybe has been, you know, kind of lulled into inaction by the comfort of a monthly salary? Well, it's funny now in the COVID era, you know, there's going to, I have, I think 20% of my friends are going to be unemployed in like the next six weeks or at least three months, including a lot of great data scientists. The question is, what are these people going to do and how are we going to get, how are we going to reboot the economy? I think, um, I think in terms of, of or and new blooming data scientists that are really early in their career, I think getting your hands on data and touching it and experimenting with it and bouncing one data set up against another is uh, the thing to do. It just gives you real world experience. So I'm right now trying to compile a list of open data sources that I, I think are useful for that. My field is entity resolution, which is understanding when two people are the same, even though they were described differently. One record says Elizabeth, the other one says Liz. You know, one's got the maiden name, one's got the married name. The month and days transpose because a lot of times in a lot of data, months and days are transposed and dates of birth. Are they really the same people or not? This plagues so many companies in so many areas from marketing and fraud and customer service. So that's kind of become my obsession area. And uh, for people interested in that, for free, they can just download our, my software and without even giving us an email address. And they can run it on their own address book or their company, salesforce.com and find all the duplicates in a heartbeat. But that's, if you, if you, if you can't figure out who's the same as who, whether it's a person or a company, downstream analytics, downstream machine learning doesn't learn so well. Like if you think it's five different customers with five transactions, then it's really one with five. And that's just another area where I think uh, data scientists, they've had more work to do to get the data in order. It's kind of like your Rubik's Cube example. It's like, that's about like data prep. It's like getting the data in order so then you can make good analysis. So anyway, that's been one area where I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity is in entity resolution up till now. It's just been really hard and only available to PhD mathematicians and companies will have 10, 20, 50. I know some companies that have 100 people working on it. And so it's been, uh, it's been tough. Anyway, I'm not sure I answered your question. Did I answer your question? <laughs> um, yeah, partly. Uh, I guess the second half of the question was um, just, you know, tips for anyone who's been toying with that idea of, uh, of entrepreneurship. Um, I, I, Cause you know, I think it was, 
uh, Nassim Taleb that said mm. two, two of the most dangerous things in life are heroin and a monthly salary. Uh, so so <laughs> there, there's those, there's some people who are <laughs> I didn't hear involved. that. That's, yeah. It's, it's funny. Uh, so yeah, so, you know, <clears throat> ah. tips for people who have kind of been lulled into inaction by that monthly salary, who yeah. may have been toying with that idea for entrepreneurship, but um, just haven't followed through. Yeah. Well, you know, it's one thing to start a company when you're 20 and living in your car, you got nothing to lose. If you had a family uh, and, and you don't have like a bank account that's like bursting at the seams where you're going to need some money tomorrow, it's a lot harder. And right now in this uh, COVID climate, post-COVID era, there's really going to be only, there's not that many ways to go and start a business that I, I, that I can think of. One would be anything that you can do in uh, work from home productivity is probably a good business. So if you're entrepreneuring in that area, there's probably a lot of opportunity there. Every com- almost every company is having a lot of top line revenue pressure, like their gross revenues are dropping. And when that happens, they have to take costs out. So if you're going to entrepreneur and be successful in the next year or two, you're, if you're not building a worker productivity tools, you better be able to do fast cost takeout, like a return on investment in under nine months. If you're if you're creating something and it doesn't give somebody a really fast return on investment, I just, it's going to be very, very hard to sell that because companies right now are scrambling to reduce their costs. And then I think fraud, waste, and abuse are really going to hit an all-time high because desperate people do desperate things. After Katrina happened, the government pumped like 50 billion, 50 something billion dollars in to help them, to help the people in the company uh, and the companies. At that same time, about $6 billion was estimated to be stolen because they just opened up the pipes and pumped $50 billion through it. And $6 billion <laughs> disappeared, you know, or was stolen. So imagine if you're pumping $2 trillion out through the pipes. On the same statistic, I think it's $240 billion of fraud. And, and, and opportunists are going to be going after banks and going after, um, you know, healthcare and insurance. So any type of fraud, waste, or abuse detection product, which is a great place for data scientists and uh, machine learning is to find, you know, patterns in the data to quantify fraud and stop it. I think that's going to be, that's going to come in the second wave. You know, first wave will be cost takeout and second wave will be, wow, everybody's trying to rip us off. So those would be areas I would be focusing on if I were trying to be an entrepreneur. Interesting point you made about, um, you know, these, these data scientists now that are unfortunately, you know, becoming unemployed due to the, the COVID crisis. Um, and, you know, a lot of people who are breaking into the field now, they tend to focus primarily on hard technical skills. And they think that that's what's going to separate them from the rest of the crowd. But now, you know, we have, we have this great equalizer of the, of the internet. We can look everything up when we need to, right? So what would you say are going to be some of the soft skills uh, that candidates are, are missing that are really going to separate them from their competition? Do not underestimate curiosity. It is such a great soft skill. You know, just to be funny, I have you heard you can't sneeze with your eyes open? Have you heard that? I've heard of that phrase, yeah, yeah. Uh, have you ever tried? Have I've you ever tried, tried to hold your eyes open? Okay, I'm curious. Okay, I've tried. I'm telling you, man, I don't recommend anybody do this because it was very, very painful. I, I held my eyes open with my fingers and I went to sneeze. And uh, you, you, if, I, if you have a small petite sneeze, I think you can, get, you can do it. But if you've got a big, gnarly, manly sneeze, it turns out to be exceptionally painful. Like I literally almost horked up my throat. It was really just everything except the sneeze. Um, anyway, creativity can get you hurt, but um, 
But in data science, being creative, knowing where data, uh, it, knowing where where the data is, and knowing how it's structured, knowing how it flows, knowing how to combine it, knowing how to find the red, green, and blue, yellow puzzle pieces, and and how to stitch them together to go from piles of puzzle pieces to pictures, I think is um, are some softer skills. Definitely, I agree with that. Creativity and curiosity are definitely two things that you can't learn in any textbook. Um, and I mean, you can cultivate it just by working on a bunch of different problems, right? But it's it's something you have to do that. You have to cultivate it, right? So that's awesome. Um, so I was wondering if we can get into to the the Iron Man, right? So, so you've crushed a ton of these things. So what compelled you to com- to complete every Iron Man on the planet? And can you share some of the many, many accomplishments that you've had in that space? Well, I've not really been accomplished, but I'm more of a hacker. Um, I was 31. I'd never done any outdoor sports ever. My mom says to me, do you want to run a marathon? And I say, sure. It was five weeks away. So I had to train from no running ever. I'd never run a race, not a 5K ever. And I had five weeks. So I trained as much as I could. At 20 miles, I had to ask my mom to walk. And then every mile after that, she's like, are you ready to run, Jeffrey? Are you ready? I'm like, no, mom, not yet. I mean, she could have carried me over the finish line. So that kind of got me started. And uh, and then... And then I, I started doing some mountain biking and then did a triathlon and then did a bigger one and a bigger one and a longer one. And then I started doing these Ironmans and, and then my buddy, we did, we, my buddy and I went and did like the Ironman in France. And the next year he goes, you want to go do the one in France again? I go, no, let's do Switzerland. He goes, why? And I go, I'd rather do them all once instead of the same one over and over. But I didn't really mean it. But it, it turns out that's what happened. And I said it for years, like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to slowly work my way through them. But I never thought it was possible. There's millions of people that do these triathlons. And to do every single Ironman turns out to be really, really hard to do because they delete them and then they add them. And so it's like a whack-a-mole thing. And some years I've had to do seven in one year. And then once you, once you, once you get in that club where you're one of three people, there's five now, but when you're one of three people on the, in like 2014, I think it was, or 2013, Somewhere around there, there was nobody that had done them all. And on that day in Copenhagen, three of us came across the finish line. And so we enacted something called the club. And yeah, it's awful hard to get in. Then every year you have to watch the Ironman organization. And by the way, you know, if you have a listener that doesn't know, it's a 2.4 mile swim, uh, which is 3.8 kilometers. Then it's a 112 mile bike ride, which is 180 kilometers. And then it's a full marathon. You just do them all in a row. So it's a long day. But now we're in this club. And, and so every year, Ironman announces new races. And it's a bit nerve wracking because A, you still have to get in and sign up before other people and they fill up. And then sometimes they, they're not trying to optimize them so the three of us in the club can do them. One year, they put four races on four continents in two weeks. And that included on one weekend, there was an Ironman in Mallorca, Spain on the island on Saturday. And then they had an Ironman, a brand new Ironman that we had to go do that was in uh, Louisville, Kentucky the next day. No one has ever even attempted two Ironmans on two continents in two days. And we thought it was impossible. And then, um, and then we figured it out. It's a very, it was a big, big logistics challenge to finish one race, then get on a plane and get all the way across the continent and then get to another race. We got to the second race and to the, the, the starting line 30 minutes before the gun went off. I mean, like literally just dashed across the globe and then 30 minutes later, bang, 
and another Ironman back to back. That was that was a long weekend and uh, took a lot of perseverance. I wow. walked <laughs> almost all of the marathon on the second one because I didn't know. I wanted to finish for sure, and I did not know how close I was to actually falling over and needing the hospital. And so to just be totally sure I got across the finish line, I just, I walked probably 40 of the 42 kilometers just to be sure I wasn't going to like have, I don't know, have a heart issue. But that was, that was maybe the most Herculean thing I've done. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. So, I mean, so what I'm getting from you is it's not even the actual physical activities that are difficult. It's just the logistics that, that were challenging. These <laughs> <laughs> were really hard. Uh, so, so tell us about that taste like mango story. I was in South Africa doing the Ironman down in Port Elizabeth. It's uh, around the corner there from uh, the capital. I'd finished the swim. I'd finished the bike and now I'm on the run. And as I'm running, I'm catching up somebody that's walking and I notice that they've got uh, a bunch of brown diarrhea in the back of their pants, you know, right where you would expect that to be. Clearly it's diarrhea. And I come up next to this guy and I just look at him and go, look, I don't know you. You don't know me, but this is the kind of friend I am. You you know, you've got some diarrhea in your pants. And he looks at me with his New Zealand accent and says, you mean it looks like I shot my pants? And it kind of, it's hard to imagine that you wouldn't know. Um, But it was, there's an, there's an edge case where maybe you sharded and you didn't know. I don't know, man. So I, I say, yeah, yeah, in fact, and he looks at me perplexed. And he scrapes his bum with his right hand. And now it's got the oozy brown stuff in his hand. And I can't tell you what I'm processing because my brain's not, you're already kind of exhausted. You're not thinking clear, but he looks confused too. He's startled. It actually looks like his diarrhea. He looks at it, looks at me perplexed, looks at it, sniffs it, looks at me, looks at it perplexed. And I kid you not, sticks his tongue on it. And by the way, this is related to my work. Like, you might not seem like it, but this is actually related to my work. So he sticks his tongue on it and then looks at me and I'm out of my mind now. And he just goes, it tastes like mango. I'm like, excuse me? He goes, yeah, it tastes like mango. I had a gel replacement pack, you know, a a sports pack chomped down and uh, it ruptured. So it wasn't diarrhea. It's just my sports gel pack kind of popped right in that spot. And, you know... I don't know. He puts some water on it. He goes, is it gone? And he puts some more water on it, rubs his hand on it. Is it gone? And finally, finally I say, yeah, it's gone. And he <laughs> shake my hand to thank me. And I'm, you almost don't want to shake his hand because I'm so sure it was poo, you know, it's kind of awkward. Yeah. But, but here's the thing is I would have bet you a million dollars. That was uh, diarrhea. But <laughs> when, when new evidence emerged, I realized it wasn't. And that's something that we've spent millions doing in our own software is, you have to let new observations reverse earlier assertions. This is something that's missing in most machine learning. The only way to introduce new knowledge is you have to rerun all the models, and it's a big batch process. But real-time learning, where right in the moment, you say, oh, now that I know that, had I known that in the beginning, and you have to redo your decisions. I decided it was diarrhea, but I had to undecide when I was given more evidence. So a new feature in the software is going to be a diarrhea detective detection module then? <laughs> <laughs> So there's a lot of people out there who, who are trying to to break into data science and maybe they don't feel like they, they, they feel like they don't belong or they don't know enough. They aren't smart enough or whatever. Uh, do you have any words of encouragement for them? I would tell them to download some data and start. 
if you're if they're if they're bored and have free time on their hands, I'd find a maybe a charity that they like and ask them if they need any help analyzing some of their data and just start. I would literally just work on stuff, even if it's free, just to get your chops up, just to get your hands on real real problems and real data. That's awesome advice. Yeah. Um, so last kind of formal question here before we jump into the lightning round. Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. What's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? You know, I got this quote from this lady uh, that I've done a lot of Ironmans with. She said it to me on a race course when we were both suffering. There's times where you just really want to quit. And uh, she said to me, if you quit, there's no chance a miracle will happen. And that really stuck with me. Yeah, it's powerful. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You definitely embody that, you know, through through everything you've been through and, and everything you've been able to accomplish. So, wow, that's, that's powerful. Jumping in to the lightning round here. Uh, so what's the number one book, fiction or nonfiction, uh, that you would recommend for our audience to read and your most impactful takeaway from that? I really, I've only read maybe 10 books in my adult life. Like I really don't read and I don't watch TV. Like I actually personally learn through talking to people and doing real projects and real data. But that mm-hmm. said, the one book I have read in the last 10 years was a, a book that Lee Kuan Yew, the founder of Singapore, wrote called One Man's View of the World. Now, I can't compare it to any other books because I don't read other books. Yeah. But that was, it really struck me on what it means to have smart leadership. And I think mm. in a lot of places in the world, the way their the democratic process can work, Lee Kuan Yew made a point about how when you get two parties that bicker so much, it's hard to get really smart people because who wants to get that much mud thrown in their face? Mm. So if it reduces your, I'm not, this is not a political statement on the right or the left, by the way, this is, it's indifferent to that. It's just, you want really smart policy in place. So that was my takeaway from that book. And then because I, my Sensing company, well, it's actually not much of a startup. It's more of a reincarnation because I spun it out of IBM. But I read many of the chapters in the book called Zero to One by Peter Thiel. And there's a bunch of chapters in there that I was just like, oh, that's very interesting. And one of them was, if you don't have something that's like 10 times better and high margins, then you can't innovate and you end up having to just, you kind of struggle slowly to the bottom <laughs> competing with others. If you don't have something that's truly breakaway, then you can't keep innovating. And, and Apple's it was an example of that, but, and we strive for that. But anyway, those are the answers to that. So if you could somehow get a magical telephone that allowed you to contact 18 year old Jeff, uh, what would you tell him? Think twice before getting married. <laughs> I have three ex-wives, man. <laughs> How's that for more, more record setting? Man, I'm an overachiever. I just hate to say <laughs> I just hate saying no. It's like, will you marry me? I'm like, oh, God. yeah, sure. Oh, I hate letting people down. I don't know. That's all I got on that one. <laughs> That's a good one. Maybe. 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 So, Maybe a better one is I would have said, I would have said to myself, stay focused on things that are useful and sustainable, like create things that are useful and sustainable. Because I did spend some time creating things that might have been intellectually curious, but they weren't, mm-hmm. they didn't have the same utility and sustainability. 
Would you care to elaborate on, on any of those projects? You know, I, I wrote some software for the North America Llama Society to write to do llama birth certificates. <laughs> it, like they needed it and it made, I made a few dollars doing it, uh, but it wasn't as impactful as my work in uh, modernizing voter registration in America or as impactful as reunifying loved ones after Katrina that couldn't find each other because they got dispersed across the relocation facilities. Like those, those are just more impactful. So, and I wasn't careful. It was more like a, uh, a locust has no directional control, I'm told. If you create a line of fire and you put locusts right next to it and the locusts are going, hey, this is hot, I'm out. I gotta get out of here. They don't know where they're jumping. They're just jumping. So half jump in the fire. And so I was somewhat directionless. I would just take the next piece of work that came along without much thought about things that would be more useful and sustainable. So I might've had a bigger lifetime impact had I been a little more cautious. Now I'm very cautious around that. Even, even so, like you've still got, you know, over a hundred inventions that, that you've got credit, credited to you. So I think that, that having that kind of attitude uh, leads to being really prolific, right? So, so of, of these hundred inventions, you know, um, obviously the, the llama birth registration is, is low on the list, but what Lower, would you say? I'm sure they appreciated it in the day. Um, um, what would you say is your favorite one out of the hundred? Well, voter registration modernization. We America's a highly mobile society, or it was at least two months ago. <laughs> um, but we, you know, if you register to vote in one state and then you move to another state, you'd forget to unregister. And so you end up where there's more people on the election rolls than even live there. And so we built a system that's now running over half the country. And so, and, and we did it in a privacy enhancing way. And so we're really quite proud of that. I did some work with some astronomers at the Institute of Astronomy at the University of Honolulu or Institute of Hawaii, whatever it is, Honolulu, I think. And, uh, and that was pretty exciting because now and then asteroids hit each other and then you don't know where they're going. And they didn't really have a way to forecast that. And I invented a, a method to compute it. They didn't think there was enough computers really. They needed 10 million computer hours to try to forecast when asteroids hit asteroids. And I figured out a really simple way to do it very fast. And it led astronomers to be able to watch asteroids uh, get close to each other and possibly hit each other, like anticipate when and where in the sky, night sky, 600,000 asteroids might cross each other's paths really close. So that's pretty exciting. Wow. Uh, would you, would you mind getting going a little bit more deeper into that, into that project? I'm um, just kind of, you know, yeah, well, as... I was, I was visiting with these, uh, these astronomer types and because I don't really have any s smarts in the area, I had to ask them a bunch of very stupid questions, but, but along the journey, they explained one of their challenges. They, they said, you know, we, we have all these asteroids. We know they don't hit earth because we can check that. We check them. We, when we, when we register an asteroid, we look at its journey and make sure it doesn't hit Earth. And, they, and I said, well, you know, the asteroids always, when you look in the night sky, you can always kind of then predict where the asteroid is going to be. And they said, we can't always predict where it's going to be because sometimes they've rotated and the sun's not bouncing off them so you can't see them. Other times we had the orbit calculation a little bit off, so it's not kind of where we thought it was. And sometimes they hit other asteroids, so now you don't even know where they're going. And they said, we've only seen it twice. The Hubble telescope was taking a deep space picture and in the middle of the picture is a giant X. They're like, what? And it was the aftermath of two asteroids that had hit each other. So it looked wow. like an X. And they said, there's only been seen one other time. And then because I don't have any background in math, I asked them a stupid question. I go, well, 
if you can check the orbit of Earth and check the orbit of each asteroid to make sure it doesn't hit Earth, um, why don't you just check all the asteroid orbits against each other to see if they're going to hit each other? And they looked at me like, you fool. They said it's multi-body orbit math, which is kind of very expensive form of math. Uh, we have more than one gravity pulling thing, pulling on an object. Uh, and there's 600,000 asteroids. So it's an N squared problem. So it's an N squared problem with multi-body orbit math. It's not like astronomers have that much compute. And later an estimation was done as you need 10 million hours. And then I said, yeah, but why would you do it that way? Why wouldn't you predict when asteroids were going to hit each other by doing it this other way. And they like, you know, they looked at me whimsically and I said, well, let me explain. Why don't we use, is this too much detail, by the way? Because no, I'm no, going to tell you how good. I did it. This is good. I want to hear it. Okay. Now. I said, okay. So I said, out of those 600,000 asteroids, we're going to take asteroid number one and we're going to use your fancy math, which turns out it's Fortran, which is a little embarrassing. We're going to use uh, your fancy math and we're going to ask it, where's that asteroid going to be tomorrow at noon? And your fancy math is going to come back with an exquisite point in space. They call it RA and DEC. It's like latitude and longitude on Earth. It's a 360 degree system. So we're going to take the asteroid, we're going to take one asteroid and ask it tomorrow where it's going to be at noon and the fancy math is going to come back and go, oh, it's going to be right here. Very precise. And then I said, what we're going to do is we're going to put it into what I call a space-time box. We're going to fuzz it up to a big unit of space and time. We're just going to put it in there. It's kind of like saying, what zip code are you going to be in? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Then we're going to go to the same asteroid and we're going to say, hey, where are you going to be the day after tomorrow at noon? And it comes back with a, oh, right here. And then we go, yeah, 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 yeah. Hey, what zip code is that? And mm -hmm. so we take the first asteroid and go 25 years forward at noon and ask it where it's going to be. But in each case, fuzz it up to a zip code. And then take the next asteroid and go through each asteroid once, one, once a day for 25 years and get those points, but fuzz them up to zip codes. It turns out if you do that on any given day, there's only 2,000 um, asteroids on average per day in any zip code. Well, you just narrowed your problem down. So then you go back to just those asteroids. So you go back to one space-time box. It's pretty big. It's like a zip code. Now there's 2,000 asteroids in there at the same time. So just to those 2,000, you go to them and you say, hey, where are you going to be at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m., 4 a.m. by the hour? And then you put it in a smaller space-time box. It's kind of like saying, hey, what street are you going to be on? Not what zip code, what street? So you do two passes. The number of asteroids that are on the same small space-time box, like what street, in the same hour is so small. Then then you can run there heavy math on it. And so in under 1600 hours with some uh, doing some compute in parallel over, wow. over a few weeks, we uh, gave them a 25 year forecast of every asteroid's proximity to every other asteroid. And since then, there's been a new science papers that have come out because of this. Even if the asteroids get near each other, but don't hit uh, because they both have mass, they change each other's orbit a little bit. And you can't really estimate the mass of these asteroids. They're just shiny dots of light. You don't know if it's like a soft cotton candy cloud or if it's iron. But when you can see how they change each other's orbit, then you can understand their mass. And so I got a cool email from them. It says it's the first time in the history of astronomy we, 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 we knew where to look when. That's awesome, man. That's Watch so two cool. asteroids glaze each other. Yeah. Much of my work is used if I were to generalize that across all of my work. It's my work is often about helping humans focus their finite resources. Wow. That is awesome. So it sounds like, like a little bit of a, just on the surface, like divide and conquer and type of recursion 
techniques that you apply to that problem? It's, it's, um, yeah. it's, it's um, you could call it cl- uh, smart clustering. I, uh, you know, you could call it uh, coming up with the candidates. <clears throat> My work in any resolution, if you have a billion records loaded and you get a new record, you're not going to go table scan the whole database to try to find the record. So you have to be able to find candidates fast. So the idea that I came up on the asteroids was how to take every, how to find all the candidates and then only do heavy math on the candidates. That's awesome. Well, thank you for saving all 6 billion of us. Or <laughs> seven billion. <laughs> yeah. Hey, you're going to owe me. You are going to owe me. Hey, that checks in the mail. <laughs> so which, which of your inventions do you think is most relevant now to the current times? My new company, Sensing, is democratizing this entity resolution problem. Everybody struggles with it. Everybody's spending too much money on it. Nonprofits have duplicates in their mailing lists. I let them just download it and clean up their mailing list for free. We're letting anybody that's doing humanitarian uh, nonprofit work for COVID, we'll give them as big a licenses as they need. But it's in the epicenter of a lot of, from CRM to anti-fraud to contact tracing, understanding who is who and who's related to who has been really expensive and hard. And we just made it easy. And part of the invention, it's a self-tuning, self-learning, self-correcting the past learning. Um, it all all in real time, no reloading, no batches. You don't have to pre-train the data set. So it's a very, Wired ran a, a, a story called AI Needs Common Sense. And I, I realized after reading it, it's the best way to describe what we do. Have you seen these AIs where you show it a picture of a bus, but you change a few pixels in the picture of the bus. So it still looks like a bus to you and I, but the, 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 the machine then says, that's an ostrich. So then you take a picture of a bridge and you change a couple pictures, pixels, and then it comes back with the same AI and goes, it's an ostrich. And you and I are going, that's a bridge. So Wired did a story on common sense. And, and so that's what I've created with tens of millions of dollars is a real-time learning AI that starts with common sense. And then in real time learns to improve its decisions forward and backwards, like changing its mind about the past mango style. Wow. Anyway, that's exciting. And I'm, I'm trying to make it I'm trying to take something that was tens of millions to build and make it super affordable to everybody. That's so cool. Uh, do you want to get into that a little bit or, or are you allowed to? I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever, whatever. Uh, yeah. Which way do you want? How, what do you want? The one minute version? <laughs> what do you want? What do you want? Yeah. Give me let's, do the, let's, let's do the one minute version. Yeah. Um, I'll tell you what, why should a machine or somebody trying to entity resolve data with learning systems have to learn that Richard, Dick, Ricky, Rick, Ricardo are all the same. Like why, why should they have to relearn that? Why should they have to relearn that Mohammed is spelled one way in Arabic, but over a hundred ways in English and Elizabeth, Beth, Liz, Lizzie. So we have a, a machine learned library of all those name transliterations across cultures. that's just built in. We got it from our IBM relationship and it's already had all the investment. That's common sense, man. Why would you have yeah. to relearn that? Same with addresses. Addresses are messy. It comes out of the box with a machine learned address parser that was trained off of OpenStreetMaps with machine learning. So, so those are common. Those are common sense aspects. And then another common sense item is if the name and passport are the same, that's a pretty good indicator it's the same person. It, what what real time learning would be if if the passport field's got some garbage in it, like it's just got one two three. You have ten million records and their passport number is one two three. Well, passport numbers might be usually good, but not that one. So in real time, that wasn't part of common sense. Common sense is passports are great. Uh, but in real time learning, it goes, wow, 50 people have a passport number called one, two, three. Ah, that can't be. So then it gets smarter going forward. Then it goes, well, now that I know that, should I change the past and fix the past? And so that's a very simple example of, of interweaving, uh, common sense with real time learning. 
continue with the lightning round. Wow. Uh, that was really, I don't awesome. feel like this is a lightning <laughs> round anymore. This is yeah, like yeah. commentary. Tell me about your asteroid hunter work. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the best advice you ever received? You know, I maybe I don't know. I I received it from from the feedback loop of the world. But when I went bankrupt, I realized that I'd made a lot of promises and I wasn't able to keep them. And if you want to do really high quality work and build a reputation, you've got to really deliver on what you promise. And so that was a kind of a gift from the planet Mm. about just be really careful about making commitments you can keep and then keep them. That's awesome. That's good advice. Do you have a favorite Ironman event? Oh, I like the one. You mean which, like swim, bike, or run, or what, a location? Uh, both, both. Yeah. Um, the cycling comes easiest for me. You can coast. My favorite Ironman is the Ironman in Austria. Yeah, beautiful country. Was that because there's a lot of downhill coasting you could do on the bikes? <laughs> <laughs> no, that race was pretty flat. It was what we would yeah. call a fat race course. Yeah. Uh, so what motivates you right now? I'm just trying to make a difference, you know, especially in this COVID world. I'm, I'm trying to make sure my, all my team is doing well and their families are doing well. I'm trying to make sure my network is doing well. Those things motivate me in data. I love producing really great outcomes and I'm become super focused. Um, and, and it's a survival point is, is if you can't for in my business, if you can't figure out how to help somebody reduce their costs and pay for my software within weeks, you know, a few months or maybe weeks, there's no business to be had. So you just have to find, you have to find where the wind is and get in the wind. And so, awesome. yeah, I'm focused on helping people around me and yeah. Uh, so how can people connect with you? Where can they find you? Um, I'm Jeff at Senzing, S-E-N-Z-I-N-G.com. I answer every email I get from everybody. This is true. I've tried it. <laughs> yeah. Jeff, thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank that's you so much. Good. I'm also on LinkedIn. I tend to only connect with people that I kind of know, or, you know, if somebody commented that they listened to your podcast, then they're in, but I'm pretty cautious. That's because you know how LinkedIn recommends happy birthdays and congratulations for new jobs. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. The flagellary box. uh I actually do all of those and I customize every single message. Wow. Yeah. That is, that is awesome, man. 1000 people in my LinkedIn. Dude, that's so cool, man. It's important to be accessible. You know, I learn a lot by connecting with others and it, it's created a lot of really goodwill. So I'm highly accessible. I just, if anybody wants to chat, shoot me a note. It doesn't matter if it's about your mom's health. I don't, I'm not an expert at that. I guess that's, I'm not a doctor, <laughs> but you know, well, yeah. anyway, yeah, I'm accessible. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. I, I know I learned a lot from you today and, and, you know, whoever's listening to this podcast, definitely there's a lot, so much here to, to take away. I thank you so much for your time, Jeff. I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be here. It really means a lot to me. Uh, so thank you. Thanks, man. I enjoyed it. Awesome. Yeah. Have a good one.